Welcome everyone to another Bright Sparks conversation. Today I'm joined by Shanti Moores, who is the Business Development Manager uh, in Energy Solutions and Renewables at EcoVantage, and a friend of Bright Sparks Australia, and a somewhat regular attendee at our monthly Poles and Wires in-person drinks in another time and dimension of space, um, which happens monthly in New South Wales, uh, in Sydney, um, Melbourne and Canberra. So welcome Shanti and thanks for giving us some time today. My pleasure. Thanks, Finn. And it's a just as you mentioned, those face-to-face -face drinks, there's a lot of good times that we've had there and a lot of nice people to meet. So That's encourage right. anyone and to jump along. Excellent. And and most of our uh in-person minutes between you and I have been spent at, at such events. <laughs> True. Sure. I hug your attention. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, no, no. It's always it's always an interesting exchange and and that's that's partially what, what prompted us to ask you to um, give us a few words and minutes of your time today. No, thanks, so, Ken. Not at all. We'll jump into it. And our first question off the rank is is uh, is that we'd like to know a little bit about your journey to your current position and profession. Um, what you studied and whether it was a straightforward journey to get here or if there have been unexpected changes along the way. I, there's probably too many unexpected changes to, to list, to be honest. I started off, I studied ecology. I studied specifically, like I was looking at marine science. And uh, so that was my under, undergraduate Bachelor of Science majoring in ecology and marine science. And then I went on and did my honours and I was looking at shark ecology because I loved sharks and rays and I was really excited about exploring ecology. But uh, it's, it's an industry that's very niche, very, very niche. And there's probably like two jobs for PhDs in Australia or something like that, something ridiculous. So... I broadened my horizons and, and I looked elsewhere. So I, I went into the environmental consulting and, and scientific world. And to be honest, the start of my journey was a mixture. I worked in consultancies, you know, doing mostly you work, end up working for mines and consultancies, to be honest. It's about getting approvals for things that you don't want to get approvals for. And then, um, I was looking after biodiversity projects in, in different iterations of my career, I was looking after large-scale regeneration and biodiversity projects. <laughs> Funny enough, some of those involved mines as well because they have large offset lands that you have to, uh, they have to bring back to within a similar degree of biodiversity to what was previously there. And actually, um, sometimes they end up better because there were paddocks that they dug up. Not, I mean, the embedded carbon and the things that they've taken out of the grounds, it doesn't counteract no. that. So don't get that wrong idea. But uh, that, was, that was part of my uh, earlier career. So I did that for a few years. And then um, I was, I think I took a year off uh, between a couple of jobs. Not a year, I took six months. And I was in India and I remember waking up. This is quite a pivotal point in, in, in my life. I always remember it. I was 
in this place called Oroville, which is a kind of an on-purpose sustainability type of village. And they have they have this sort of central area that you can go to where people give lectures on different topics. I remember one night there was a, a nuclear physicist gave a talk there. He was from some Canadian uh, university. And they give talks on a, a wide variety of things. But it was a really interactive environment. There's permaculture farms and regeneration farms and um, biodynamic farms and all of those kind of things. And they had workshops everywhere. And I remember waking up one morning, I was staying in accommodation there. And it was about four in the morning. My heart was pounding. It was just like, it's like I'd had the biggest shot of adrenaline. And, and I was like, oh, crap. And I, I, I sort of... I felt a bit stressed. I was like, oh, I know, I know what I want to do. I know uh, where I want to go. And it's what you and I have talked about multiple times is developing these, these type of projects, developing projects like agrivoltaics where you've got multiple income streams. And so that then shaped what I did from then on. That was 2016, I think. And then I went on and I did, business development for a biodiversity company. I thought, that's great. I've got that down pat. Now I want to get into energy. I want to understand how energy works and because I was pretty ignorant about energy. Started off in project management. Um, I, I like project management, but it's a bit, you know, fiddly and nuanced. So I, <laughs> I much prefer sales because I like developing things. Uh, so I went back into business development for... Um, and that's arrives where I'm at now in the carbon projects. I look after carbon certificates for, for large solar, for commercial and industrial customers. So helping take what is essentially something that's a huge capital expenditure and, and finding out revenue streams and, and different ways to make that huge capital expenditure and, and bring it to something that's lower through different certificate types and rebates and looking at how we can help them. So that's where I'm at. That's, that's the journey, I guess, from Fantastic. humble ecology. I still love ecology, but uh, to, um, to where I am now selling carbon certificates, what a carbon credits. And really, <laughs> you're, the, you're the archetypal um, <laughs> journeyman to, um, to, to our our area, our sector, because uh, from yeah. a bright sparks perspective, because we seek to, you know, we, we've got a few a few kind of mission statements like encouraging and inspiring young people that might be early stage professionals or students, um, but we also have a lot of people that have moved into energy laterally from other areas, and you know we'd like to share their stories and and give their message to other people that might be thinking about the same. So, yeah, that's definitely. That definitely fits very well. Um, yeah. I'm very glad to have heard some of those details. Um, <laughs> them not having come out at the pub before, but I also like. No. I also like that you mentioned the the finickiness of management because I'm I'm aware of your aversion for uh, more more stringent requirements for meetings in terms of agenda. <laughs> uh, I, I've heard Charlie say that if there's no agenda, there's no meeting or you know, it's got a, you know, something that I would definitely appreciate and it's, it's probably needed more in, in more places, that kind of oh, direct, stringent requirement of 
um, not allowing, I think it's Parkinson's law, which is, I might have that wrong, but it's, it's about work expanding to fill the time allocated to it. Yeah. Good memory, Finn. Uh, no, that's a, it's a definitely, I think you can just fill a lot of space with wool if, uh, when you don't have much of a plan for a meeting or even a sales talk or anything, any conversation, it just can, I think they, you know, you want to go, if you, if you're looking at going from earth to Mars, you don't want to go over to Pluto or Jupiter. <laughs> you want to go to Mars. You want to go direct. You don't want to go to all the other planets. Right. But sometimes the direct path is not always the most optimum. You might want a slingshot or, um, yep, sure. you know, you might go in, in, in an indirect path to land at your destination sometimes. At least look, when you're talking my, about the spacecraft. And yeah, look, travel. my career, <laughs> my work and, and what I do and, and where I've gone is definitely not a straight line. Definitely. I think could, in conversations. In, yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Sure, for that, for that average meeting, direct is absolutely best. But yeah, <laughs> it, it, if, if we could liken your career to interplanetary travel, you're somewhere around Jupiter or Saturn now and slingshotting around <laughs> them to, <laughs> to further find yeah, destinations. Yeah, good way to put well, it. <laughs> along that journey then, what's something that maybe maybe in isolation is something you're, you're quite proud of having achieved? I think there's multiple things that I'm proud of throughout the journey. Just the self-development has been getting the confidence. I think when I started out in this industry, you start out and you come out of university, you're pretty arrogant. <laughs> you think you know everything. You think you've got it all figured out. And you, you think that you're kind of above rules and, and all of that kind of thing. But um, so there was a humility in the beginning of learning how to, how to become not not an individual focused person but a, a team focused person and then uh developing myself and understanding like that i can talk to anyone and that when you've got a passion and you're tenacious and you care about these things that to bring those projects to people you, you're not burdening them you're bringing them a solution you're bringing it's something worth their time and it's worth your time putting out there when, when you like i couldn't sell uh stocks for a company that i didn't believe in but what i can do is i can talk about and i can go on about these projects and and and, and articulate them because i'm excited and i think they're really worthwhile so uh, that that's something that's that's definitely developed throughout the career and 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 that's something I'm proud of is, is the story that I'm able to tell and um, I guess morphing from, from one point to another. There's, there's lots of little jobs that I've won and, and, and changes that I've made, but uh, I think if you, if you wanted to look at a collective change, it's, it's a, a personal change and, and a confidence in our industry and a confidence that what we do is the most worthwhile thing to do. Fantastic. I think just um, taking your university thought out um, a little further, there's probably something like a loose Pareto principle where maybe 20% of the content you learned is now 80% of your focus and maybe 80% of, of your value in general is, is, it comes out in teamwork and only 20% in, in isolation. 
and those mm. those aren't necessarily things you, you'd expect from from the get-go and i, I like how you you're, you're hinting at how diversity in terms of profession is super useful in our sector it's not just engineers absolutely everything yeah. is critical and people that have that have experience in, you know in, with multiple hats on can fill uh you know surprisingly niche roles because yeah. because the, the skill set is so transferable across different domains within the sector massively and look i went to an hr conference a while back and she talked about the difference between having a cookie cutter uh i guess hr policy where you you employ the person that has the highest gpa that they come from the best schools and they, they have all of these credentials and then looking more broadly and i'm talking racially more broadly or sexually diverse whatever and then having those people within the mix of the business it, it brings about so much more innovation because if you've all gone to the same school you've all got similar marks you know you know each other it, it, it you end up in a silo you end up in a similar thought pattern you sort of whirl around in your in your little silo thinking about the same thing but when you've got somebody that's come and, and me i've come from a, quite a broad range of experience and, and lots of different jobs i'm coming in there and i'm not in that silo i'm coming from an outside of the silo i've got the sledgehammer trying to knock it down and think of different ways to uh to do things it, and that's that's diversity now I, I talk about myself personally but gender diversity, um, ethnic diversity, any of those things. It, it brings in innovation and it brings in a new way of being. So uh, I'd encourage any business to look for the most diverse employee sort of profile. Awesome. Shanti, what gets you out of bed every day? I'm sure, you know, we've, <laughs> we've, we've skirted around that already, but yeah. It's usually in the alarm clock. Well, you're no, definitely no. making surely. <laughs> that's that's, that's, that's humour. I culturally identify as a dad, <laughs> but I don't have any children. <laughs> well, what I what I no seriously. Um, look, firstly, you got to take care of yourself. So I like to in the mornings. Usually, I do the things that take care of my body and take care of my mind. So I like to get out i like to move the body so do some stretching do some work then i go for a surf and i do a meditation and that gets me prepped for the day and it brings me to the day enthusiastically but um what motivates me throughout the day is is the purpose the purpose of the work i'm very driven by the purpose of my work i'm not one of those people i mean it, you're probably it's similar for yourself like we could you could go to a different industry, you could go somewhere else and you could earn higher dollars, but that's not the driving force. We're more driven by this is what we want to achieve. Now, it's nice to earn um, a good wage. It's nice to have perks and things like that. But morally, it, we're more driven and it's actually more important to have a purpose and then to, to tell that story to other people because you're excited about it. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this and I'm doing this project and doing this project. That's what that's what drives me throughout my day and, and through some of the nights. Because <laughs> let's be honest, we sometimes work nights. <laughs> it's, it's been known to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and 
antithetical to the the purpose are well is Australia's or you know state-based track records of policy that is you know undermining the the principles that we're alluding to here so what grinds your gears in uh, climate or sustainability policy of late or uh, over time oh there's been there's been plenty I, we just we're real laggard we we just drag our feet and and i'm not talking state-based because actually from the grassroots level we saw that huge movement i think it was a year or two ago 2019 when greta twinberg really started something quite massive it was she was she wasn't the only thing but she was like the last straw on the camel's back and then councils all started declaring that they were going carbon neutral and then state government really got stuck into some policies and it really sold it for some of these big guys and there was some re really started to to get a lot of movement and, and it's it's just been exponential growth from then so i, I won't rag on or, or put down um those lower levels of government or let's not, let's not say lower levels more, more grassroots levels of government but the the federal government i think takes a lot of credit for what the state governments are doing and they take credit for all of the, the corporate movements and all of the excellence that's happening with renewables but they've done nothing but put the foot on the brake and, and create barriers and create red tape around these things and that that's what grinds my gears particularly the energy minister he he talks about uh carbon capture and i'm like come on there's so many things that we can be doing and investing in why are we wasting multiple millions or billions of dollars on carbon captured technology when there is such better things that we can be doing we can be doing renewable projects biochar we can be doing you know ag agrivoltaics and, and mixtures of things and we can become an economic superpower in in renewables you work for fire well you're working on that uh sun cable project and that that is making us uh, but that's got nothing to do with the federal government they've just been um the red tape brigade but uh it, that that was pushed by mike cannon brooks and uh twiggy forest was it yeah that's it, that's not that's not entirely true that there have been some uh, some pushes federally and 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 stately to oh that's good to know to, to fast to track hear. to fast track its development actually oh uh, that's yeah good. Oh, well, look that that i don't disagree yeah, with some of your other assessments there <laughs> shanti's firing shots no, no um <laughs> look i'll fire shots as a federal say. government <laughs> but yeah like credit where credit's due if if they're they're helping and and they're helping create and initiate and, and open up roads all those type of things and credit where credit's due but uh, given our past history i mean we i was so excited when julia gillard brought in uh, the carbon credits and then we got successive governments that just put it down and didn't even believe in it i mean the other government all but demolished any progress so and um, i mean that's there's a history of, of dragging our feet that that's what grinds my gears is, is mm. dragging our feet when the house is on fire and we need to act immediately we need to get the hoses we need to break through windows and put those put out those spot fires and, and do what we can 
Yes, uh, thankfully the momentum in a really ground up way, as you mentioned, is uh, is not allowing higher and higher levels of the hierarchy to get away with much anymore. There are a no. few, you know, a few major capital cities around the world kind of fell to the siege of of the um, net zero campaign, and that that led to more states and 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 regions adopting the same thing, and now it's increasing pressure as that moves upwards. Um, so, so that you have, you know, th there is still um, time and funds wastage on things like carbon capture and storage, in our opinion. But, you know, yeah. the, the if, if the if the eye of Sauron is fixed, right? <laughs> that's yeah, that's a terrible. Sauron. That's a terrible analogy. That makes it sound evil, <laughs> or, or or at least that you know that paints in a in a very bad light the collective. Uh, oh, I like uh, it. That it's a, good, it's a good one on power. It's kind of kind of the opposite, though. That's you know. Anyway, yeah. You, look, I, I understand. Even if it wasn't, yeah. I I'll just wait one comment on that. If if you if you got Boris Johnson Boris Johnson championing net zero and one hundred percent renewables and championing EV cars, you know you've won the battle because they right. call that guy. You know, like he is quintessentially uh, what we would call here in Australia liberal, but he's quintessentially right-winged and, and probably more to the right side of, of his party than others, than centrist. And he's championing it. He knows that's the future. He knows that's he, he will be an economically dismantled if he doesn't champion it. So it's a good spokesperson. Yeah, the, the, the sunk cost uh, accumulates until, you know, the asset becomes stranded or it you know the, the certainty that the asset whatever that means will be stranded is increased is, is increasing so much that it's it's about to hit the, the you know so high so high confidence interval that it's time to jump out and you can see that happening with divestment you can see that happening you know across uh, you know superannuation portfolios it applies also to governments if you yeah. know the ways the ways they have been doing things um is the 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 fuse is running out you'll see a shift but and and this happens across the aisle the the really sad thing is you also mentioned before that credit is claimed where it's not due and and it seems it seems that the whether or not it's true that the that the public's memory is very short term or not that's that's always trying to be exploited by the way messaging changes after so long of resisting a movement has, has finally caved and and the you know the benefits start to become so apparent that people have to switch over in their mindset and mm. their money and, and their policy so let's talk a little bit about your day-to-day -day, shanti what what goes on in the in the in the the credit space what tools in your toolbox are you utilizing to bring down uh, emissions and, and promote cost savings for those commercial and industrial customers? I'm kind of in a, an interesting space in that area. I, I'm not always directly customer facing. I work a lot with, they call them EPCs, but uh, people that install solar, people that design solar, people that are put a solar, putting solar farms in and, and people that own large assets. Also people that are financing uh, large solar and, and buying up 
solar bit by bit. So I'm not always directly customer facing, but what I am doing and what uh, the business that I work for is doing is we're, we're taking projects which it might be difficult to get to get across the line because there's hesitancy because it is a, a capital outlay. Even if your return on investment's two years, it's still a big capital outlay. And we're making that capital outlay less. We're making it more manageable. And we're looking at ways to shrink. So I always talk about we take people from, I don't say CO2 villains, but it's something that I want to say to, to climate champions. And, and we're looking at we're looking at people's businesses and we're seeing how we can facilitate that that change bringing down um, the energy use by energy efficiency projects and then looking at how we can make those more affordable and how it more accessible to everyday people uh, to everyday people not just to the uh, the richest and the, the elite and that's that's helped by uh, federal and state schemes. Actually, Victoria's got probably the best state scheme for getting these projects across the line. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for that. My oh, pleasure. And drawing on on former experience and and interest areas of yours that I'm aware of, um, let's talk reasonably briefly about a few exciting terms that include agrivoltaics. Let's start there. What does that mean? So agrivoltaics is it's a combination of solar with some other agricultural service or product, whichever way you want to phrase it. So obviously it's pretty easy to understand a solar farm, just a bunch of solar arrays and where you, you, you produce energy and that goes into the grid or it powers something within. It can be it can send energy out or it can be used on site. So that, that's what a solar farm does. Um, you can imagine, everyone can probably imagine what that looks like, a bunch of solar panels in a line, um, 5B in a little articulated organ structure type thing. <laughs> That's it. Um, which those are fantastic, by the way. And then what, what happens in, in this, it's the business mixture. So you're looking at dual income streams. So you're looking at combining it either, it can be with animals. So you can have animals that, uh, grazing animals that will move underneath say sheep or other goats or something like that um with within the same area as the as the photovoltaics or the solar panels or you can have plants uh, that benefit by some shading from the photovoltaics and and they have a lot of the new panels they're not all uh they don't have that backing so they're they're transparent they let some light through so that that shading actually protects the plants from from some of the sun and the harmful rays of the sun and, and gives them a bit of shading. And also there'd be some moisture collected there as well. So that's that's the, the, the premise of it. And the benefits of it is, is, is multiple and multifaceted. Uh, one, if you've got solar panels, why not use the shade? I, I actually have heard some funny stories about um, mixing goats with the solar panels and the goats jumping on them. So I'm imagining there's a lot of micro fractures wow. <laughs> the solar panels, which would affect production. So maybe you've got to be careful about doubt, how you... I doubt you, an engineer saw that unintended consequence before it happened. <laughs> you know, they probably didn't. They probably didn't. And so I guess you would have to have them at a certain height to stop 
the goats jumping on the solar panels. And then, but, uh, you know, they, these things, they're, they're large surface areas. Moisture is going to drip off them in the morning. It's going to feed the plants. And that's also, if you've got this, this shading and you've, you've got the plants underneath, it's, it's having a dual benefit because the plants being shaded, but also the ground's cooler. So you're not getting so much heat and, and the efficiency of your solar panels is going to go up because they're not just getting all this burden of heat. You know, they lose efficiency at a certain heat level. And if you've got plants to sort of, we all know about urban heat islands and, and trees and, and plants, they let out, they, they um, I can't remember the, the specific mechanism, but they let out water to cool themselves down and keep the localised environment cool. And that would that cools that area around the solar panels, so they're, they're creating microclimates, and which is benefiting the solar panels. And then it's also uh, the solar panels are, are feeding into helping the plants in that respect as well. So that's that's what agrivoltaics is. So you're really making an ecosystem um, in which solar almost acts like an organism in, in yeah, a symbiotic relationship definitely. with the with the plants that that whose transpiration, you know. Transpiration, that was the word I was looking for. Um, enhances the, the performance of the solar and solar gives back in a way to the, to the plants underneath. So. Yeah, yeah it's, it, feed, it feeds itself. The cycle feeds itself. And okay, they are plants in a way. Solar panels, we've, we've, I mean, most of our scientific inventions are biomimicry. We've, we've copied nature. And obviously solar panels are a bit different looking from a leaf but we are we're collecting the energy from the sun and we're changing that into electrons. All plants do is they, they take the energy from the sun and they, they change that into carbohydrates, which then feeds the plant and feeds the roots in the soil. So they're a and type of plant. I mean, they're an electric plant. Sun. Pardon? All, all energy sources trace back to the sun anyway. Like, yeah, yeah, electric definitely. plant, that's, that's, some, that's some marketing we can definitely exploit. Yeah, <laughs> massively. Massively. But it sounds like yeah. there's a lot of opportunities for cost and land use efficiencies, um, yeah. and ecological benefits, and, and maybe even yeah, different sources of revenue as well. I think with farmers, you know, they've with, with there's income instability when you look at farms in Australia, particularly with uh, the amount of drought that we've had, climate instability with you know, rain instability, all of those types of things, they're looking at how can I have a secure base income? And if energy can provide uh, a bit of a base income, it might not provide all of their income, but provide part of it, then that gives them something to stay on the land. And also there's a point of pride because they're doing something for the environment. Then if you can combine that with their other uh, traditional methods of, of making money through planting uh, different types of crops uh, and vegetables and, and things like that, uh, then it's a, it's a really, I guess, multiple opportunities for them to, to then make more money from land, which they, which they might have been losing money on, or just, as a lot of people say, just washing your face. You know, you, you're actually just covering your costs. You're not, you're not really making anything. That segues really nicely into the next couple of points, which are regenerative agriculture and the carbon mm -hmm. soil farming. What's that all about? <laughs> so regenerative agriculture, 
there's, there's so many different ways that you can define that regenerative agriculture is agriculture that's supporting biodiversity. So it's transitioning from your conventional, and I won't say traditional because traditional farming wasn't monoculture, conventional farming, which has um, mm. been the, I guess they called it the green revolution. Let's say the, let's say the mono revolution of um, using high amounts of herbicides and pesticides and putting planting one crop and, and using large machinery to to then go and uh, get the yield from that and it what regenerative agriculture is doing a mixture of plants that support each other and and looking at so there's there's multiple methods that you can do regenerative agriculture you can plant biodiverse uh, plants uh, like species in, instead of just one crop you can plant um, you know, different you can plant like shrubs and, and trees and things like that or you can um do different methods of your farming there's different methods to get into regenerative agriculture it's sort of an umbrella term but there's no one way to do it but it's about looking after it's about looking at the land as an ecosystem and your farm as being part of that ecosystem and figuring out ways to do commercial agriculture without relying on uh, your you know your nitrogen your phosphorus your potassium imports without relying on huge amounts of water coming from uh, being sucked out of the murray or without relying on all of those external inputs uh, such as you know you, and, and huge expenditure on and, and pesticides and, and um, herbicides so it's looking at different seed types and, and making the farm in a way where it, it acts where it supports itself rather than a farm that loses a meter of topsoil per year this is about regenerating the soil not tilling it not losing the carbon from that soil and 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 working with nature instead of against it i would expect that traditional or not, not traditional um conventional practices as you said um have favorable um ease of harvest and and scale of of uh, of yield compared to these emerging practices um that might be partially yeah. offset by not just the quality of 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 food let's say that's that's grown in a in a um a, a polycultural paddock um but returning to higher quality soil yeah. could you know uplift yield and you know there's a there's a bridge to cross there in terms of making this uh, this set of practices more widespread so that so that as it scales you can you can you know cater to national or international demands for food whereas i'm sure it's you know it's more distributed and, and smaller scale in terms of operations um today but yeah and what you say is true there 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 is probably more like you could look at the economics and the yields of these larger farms but then you've got to look at the inputs that they're having to put into it and the costs associated with those inputs they don't own the seeds uh, monsanto and genetically modified seed companies own a lot of those seeds so there's a lot of inputs and costs involved with those uh, larger farms so you've got to take that into consideration 
And then you look at some of the case studies of regenerative farming where they've been more resilient when it comes to climate instability, where they've set up, where they've taken care of the streams, they've, they've looked after the way that the stream is, the, the, uh, the environment around the streams and, and the water actually seeps across the, across the land uh, rather than um, just sort of being runoff. So if you've, if you've got a field, and, and I think cotton farming is probably the, one of the most de damaging ways to do farming because they, they hack about half a metre into the soil and they go over it and they glyphosate it. So they just turn it into a moonscape and then they, put, they go there with liquid nitrogen and to put the nitrogen back into the soil. It's huge. I mean, you can imagine how harmful that is. Imagine when it rains, how hard that soil is and, and, and all of that soil is just running off into the river. So there's all of these hidden costs, all of these costs that are not taken into account when you're just looking at yield uh, that the farmer eventually has to pay, but it, and you're not going to get it back from the big agricultural or the big Pharma, uh, not pharmaceutical, the big uh, Monsantos and, and Bayers of the world. It's, whereas regenerative agriculture is about, um, it, it may be different and, and there is um, commercial models out there. There is commercial farms doing it, but it, it's not at scale as, as these other farms are at the moment. It's a shame that, that uh, truly traditional practices were lost when scale was required to meet demand. Uh, you know, it, yeah. around industrial periods and since, I guess, I can, I can remember yeah. hearing about uh, the medieval, at least medieval, maybe even ancient practice of crop rotation, having four adjacent fields, only planting and harvesting in three of those and rotating perhaps annually and letting cattle trample and produce waste in the, sp in the spare field to enrich the soil and get it ready and regenerate it for the next next cycle. So yeah. this regenerative agriculture is nothing. Yeah, Sorry. Right. You yeah. There's, yeah, a, there's a, lot, a, lot, a lot to draw from uh, in history and yeah. from different cultures around the world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Indigenous Australian culture uh, used to cultivate the land. When you read books like Dark Emu, they talk about how they used to cultivate large areas of land and, and they had kangaroo grass where they used to, you know, that was one of their grains and they used to have grain ca grain caches where they would, they would store the grain as well. So it's nothing new. Apparently in the Cumberland Plain in Sydney used to be able to, the soil used to be so soft that you could push your hand into it. It was that soft. You go out there now, it's hard as a rock. You wouldn't find any worms. You wouldn't find any microbiota in, in there. Mm. It'd be, you know, a diversity of, of three species where there would have been thousands. So regenerative agriculture is, is pretty good for uh, carbon content in soils, right? Yeah, massively. I mean, like I said before, uh, solar panels take the sun and they, they create that, turn that into energy plants. What they do is they, they take the sun's energy and they, they transform that into carbohydrates. Any carbohydrates that they have left over, that goes straight into the soil. So carbohydrates are simple sugars. I mean, we, if you're not familiar with the carbohydrate, just think about sugar, that's going into the soil and that's feeding. It's not just feeding the plant. They, they store it in the soil for all of the, the microbiology that lives there, your worms, your, your bugs, uh, they don't feed directly on, on the sugars, but they feed on the bacterias and, and the, uh, the fungi and, and the other things that do feed on that. And um, 
plants are, you know, plants are sucking in. So basically carbohydrates is, you know, it's carbon, hydrogen, oxygen in different configurations. So you're taking that carbon dioxide, it's breaking it down and it's, it's storing it in the soil, even if there's a fire. And those carbohydrates that, which have gone from carbon dioxide and, and turned into um, carbohydrates are still stored in the soil. So you're not losing it, even if there is a fire. It's all there. It's still there. Right. And this, this brings in afforestation, which was our fourth, um, fourth term that I wanted to, to, to mention today. I guess between yeah. um, soil carbon farming and and planting uh, new forests or rehabilitating old forests, given Australia's agricultural capability and scale, that is surely a a gold mine of carbon drawdown, which can be tapped into by uh, overseas nations. Is that right? Massively, massively, massively. If you zoom out. Uh, I used to live in Sydney with Finn. And uh, if you zoom out on Google Maps, you look at Sydney and it is a green paradise compared to looking in the agricultural areas of the country. They have been almost stripped mined of trees. It's just, it, it's almost clear felling in, in uh, regional and rural areas. It, there's very little diversity of plants out there and there's very little chance of that regenerating itself because there's, there's nowhere to source the seeds from. There might be a couple of paddock trees or a couple of sheep go and hide underneath that. If you go to a paddock, there's probably a, a biodiversity of one or two tree species. So there's nothing to draw from. And nature, you know, there's a bunch of weeds and grass which are helping to fix the nitrogen and help feed the sheep. But there's nothing um, there to regenerate uh, naturally or it would take a long time. Whereas afforestation that's taking an area like this, which is not moonscape, but it, it's you know lacking in biodiversity. It doesn't have a much of a bushland or a forest, depending on how you term it there. And it's, it's putting in a bunch of trees that will create a small micro, uh, a small ecosystem. And, and they're not, we don't do probably our nurseries and um, looking at the way that we do reforestation or we do afforestation. Reforestation is more when you're working in an area where there's already some bush and afforestations where there's, you know, it's a bit of a blank slate. It's probably not that plant diversity there to um, initially start a really biodiverse and healthy bushland. But what the species that we can put in will do is they'll bring in the birds, they'll bring in the mammals, they'll bring in the species that eat the fruits and seeds of these trees and they'll create corridors between different areas and then that will then increase the biodiversity within those areas. So we can set up some skeleton of an ecosystem through afforestation and you can set that up in conjunction with having agriculture. You, know, you can have... Um, more large tree species you just fence it off until uh, the trees are big enough and then you can let animals through there just give it enough space or and then have a mixed model or you can have areas of your of your land that you that you want to forest and you don't want animals ever to go on and, and you can 
you know, do afforestation on that part. There's, there's multiple ways to do it, uh, but the, and, and all of them are, are worthwhile and all of them are going to improve, I guess, your income because you can get income from it. There's rebates and there's carbon credits available. There's carbon drawdown, so there's the benefit of that. And there's the benefit to the plants and animals that live on your on your property because you, you're, you're cultivating an area that's, that's just going to be overrun by pests if you've, if you've got such a low diversity. If one species, because there's only a few species that can grow there, they'll just take over. Whereas you've got competitors when you've got more biodiversity. You've got predators that will eat those. There you go. It sounds like we can, we can bootload the rehabilitation of our nature in the same way marine biologists will create an artificial reef and get coral going again. Yeah. Or, or kelp forests. They do big kelp mm. forests as well. Great drawdown potential there too. Very interesting. Oh, massive. Topic. Massive. I mean, that sinks to the bottom of the ocean or it gets eaten by fish, which then gets eaten by other fish and then circles around. Whereas here, the carbohydrates are going into the ground and they're being stored in the ground. Fire comes over. It doesn't knock out the, the soil carbon may knock out the trees but they'll regenerate the seed mm. banks there they'll pull that carbon back out so what is it a case of of, of political will and some uh, maybe modest amount of funding in the grand scheme of things to demonstrate some of these principles at a, at a more viable scale before it takes off oh, it's already it's already taken off it's already right. if you look on any any agricultural magazine that exists at the moment I mean, I think I was watching a whole bunch of documentaries on this. They're all talking about regenerative agriculture. It's the, it's the in thing. It's like, <laughs> it's in, in fashion. Mm. If you, it's the, uh, the caterpillar of, uh, <laughs> that's farming equipment, right? <laughs> I'm not a farmer. <laughs> it's the cat of, uh, <laughs> you, you might of, be of more farming methods. In mining territory there, but sure. Yeah, well, I think, you know, that, yeah, maybe, I don't know. But John Deere, okay, let's, this is the John Deere of, uh, <laughs> of farming methods. And it's, it, the more people that do it, the more case studies there are, the more people mm. that are open to it. You know, right. it's the same with the climate movement. We saw um, certain people move uh, more progressively at the start with uh, climate change policy and excellent energy policy. And then you get the laggards and the, the feet draggers that, they go, oh, this is a good idea. Maybe I should get on the bandwagon. Mm. I'm happy for as many people to get on that bandwagon as possible. Get on that bandwagon and, you know, wave your flag proudly. Because <laughs> it's a revolution. It's a change. It's, it's an evolution. The, to get all political theory on it ever so briefly and completely unwarranted. That's the, that's the fundamental tension between progressives and conservatives. Progressives seek to identify things that need to change. And, and they move first and try to articulate for the centrists and the conservatives what's good about it. And the conservatives are, are meant to slow down progress where it's rampant or dangerous or damaging or excessive. And if they work in concert, you get sustainable, long-lasting and, and mutually beneficial change. But obviously there are fail states on both sides. If the conservatives yeah. don't allow don't budge on anything, there's failure. If progressives move too quickly uh, on particular things, then 
no one comes along for the ride either and and you get you get splintering and, and factioning yeah that's a good sell for the the type of politics that we have <laughs> yeah yeah it, it falls it falls all too often in yeah, not within that area of, of symbiosis. Yeah, it's like market forces, right? You always talk about supply versus demand, but it's not. There's all these like little nuanced things that right. get in the way. Sure. Okay, we're, we're we're quickly running out of time, but thankfully we've we've worked through everything that has some kind of technical lens, and we're starting to get a little bit more into Shanti and the and and, and his his persuasions. Um, so <laughs> a couple of quick fire questions before we go out. Um, yeah. What do you think your daily life will look like in 10 years, which is such an interview question. And so, you know. Oh, I love it. Look, I've never answered that question. I, oh, to be yeah. honest, uh, at workplaces always ask you, what, where do you see yourself in five years? And I'm like, I don't know, the moon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Terraforming the moon, no doubt. <laughs> I, in 10 years, look, I hope to not be as concerned about the environment as I am now. I hope to be, I'm, I'm very proud of the exponential growth progress that I'm seeing and the progress, not in just projects, but in the people. I'm watching you grow in, in your own career and, and where you've gone from, from when I first met you and lots of other people within Branch oh, Parks and in the industry, watching that growth. But what, you know, I hope in 10 years that I can sit back and relax a bit more about this stuff and not not feel such an urgency because it, it it's it can be a bit uh, you know it might burn us out if we I'm enthusiastic but you don't want to burn yourself out and I don't want to be running this hot for 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 ten years I don't want to be like the fireman that's trying to put out a fire for ten years I mm. want to at, at some stages go okay we've got some good processes in it's time where we can you know. We just keep rolling these, but take take a uh, a bit of a side seat and and allow space for other people to grow into the the positions and things like that. So, you know, to to not be such a frantic fireman in ten years that that's probably the the, the best summary I would say. <laughs> I, like, I like that answer. That, that's good. Yeah. And over a similar time frame, what in what in Australian energy policy? Um, do you hope will change to facilitate that in part? I, I'm not much of a policy person, but I can tell you just anything that opens us up to to being more open for EVs, that opens us up to green hydrogen, not mm, blue, blue grey, purple. Brown, yep. Only only green hydrogen, and there's something that takes us away from going out and fracking on class 1a nature reserves putting you know high running drills and and do doing direct drilling under places like barrow island and then putting hydraulic force with acid and cracking and fracturing um, the land to to get the remnants of gas and um, you know like something that takes us away from that something that moves us is that too much to ask for? I would say not. <laughs> we'll see. No. Yeah. You mentioned some documentaries earlier about permaculture and regenerative ag and stuff, but what, what else are you digging into right now that's not even necessarily sustainability related, but any interesting podcasts, books, shows, docos? 
I, to be honest, lately I've been listening to it. <laughs> it's a bit of a sales book from um, the guy that did The Wolf of Wall Street. And mm-hmm. I actually think I find the guy a bit repugnant. Uh, I, I didn't like the movie. Uh, but And I said to uh, the general manager that I work with, uh, who's my manager, and I said, I said, I'm going to cherry pick because he he does have the he does know how to work with the psychology of people and um, get these projects across the line. And I said, if that if that can reduce carbon, if that can reduce greenhouse gases, if that can improve the planet, then I'll work with it. I'll cherry pick because I'm not going to mm. push on people's um, pain points. Or I'm not going to create scarcity or work on fear. I'm going to work on inspiration. But that's what I've, I've actually been listening to that book and, and marketing books um, where, where we're using marketing techniques which are not about self-promotion or spamming or uh, it's about taking a person. So when, when we have a product, like you, you have a product at 5B or I have a product at my business, it's, it's, it's bringing that product or service to, to somebody where you can help them change the narrative. You can change their, so taking them from I am hurting the planet, I am doing bad things to the environment to here's my service that can help me champion the environment. So that's that's something that I've been listening to is things that help me facilitate that communication. Uh, obviously, okay. I still geek out on some of the uh, industry-based stuff, but that's sure. uh, that's my most recent stuff. I think that's a really worthwhile exercise. Um, I've heard it called yeah. um, finding signal in the noise. It's uh, perhaps an exercise in futility or, or missed wisdom if you know someone that you disagree with in, in some domain, uh, if that turns you, turns you off to value that you get out of something else they've done, which is perhaps useful to you in another context, that is, that's really worth your time. And I think that that ties into the steel manning concept in conversation where opponents try to do the opposite of straw manning. Straw manning is when you set up a, a caricature of your opponent's argument to, to make it easier to dismantle. Steel manning is, is something that is absolutely essential to good faith conversation. And that's where you try to explain your opponent's um, viewpoint in a, in a, in a way that they couldn't do as good a job themselves. And that that really takes the opponent dynamic out of it and takes people to finding the commonalities between each other faster. So yeah. there's another there's another unwarranted tangent. People that, that know me- That is a, a little nugget of wisdom up. from Finn, man. Well, it, Feel, man, I'm gonna look that up. Not at all original, but a really useful template that I like to carry with me throughout. A very well-read man, I believe, Finn. <laughs> uh, not, uh, you know, I, thankfully my um, my track <laughs> of, of reading in the last couple of years is not public because it's quite scant, but, um, you know, th- th- let's say there are other, other ways to get information in books, but that reminds me to read some books. <laughs> <laughs> um, a favourite climate legend, Shanti, do you have, do you have someone to mention? Because there's, there's multiple personalities out there, and I think the only person that isn't 
particularly egocentric is uh, what I've seen from Greta Thunberg. Uh, you know, you've got Tesla and, and these billionaires making money out of it. And you've got Al Gore. Actually, I quite like Al Gore. I, I think he has done fantastic things. But taking away any sort of financial incentive or, mm. or, or looking at somebody that's just fundamentally a very real and humble person, Greta Thunberg has has created momentum and it's come from these the use it's come from i remember when i first heard about the, the climate uh, change the school the school climate change uh, right. protests in, in 2019 i heard it i heard them chanting on um on hack on triple j and uh, i i started like just weeping because i was and i don't normally get moved that much but it was just so beautiful to finally it's like oh it's like a real relaxation it's like okay that they're motivated and they know what needs to happen and and it's not just the few of us it's not the niche it's not the small amount of people now it's it's growing and there's recognition broad recognition and she championed her and many others like she's just the she's the the spearhead Hmm. of of the spear but uh you know, it's a, she's, she's a real legend and she doesn't disguise who she is. She's got, uh, I think not down. So she's got Asperger's or something. And yep. she, she really uses that as a, as a as strength. And she's a tiny, tiny human being with immense power. So yeah, I'd say her. I'm sure a mighty chorus would, would back you on that assessment. Yeah, I'm sure she would be a, a very common answer for who is a climate legend. Um, a spirit animal, do you have one, Shanti? <laughs> my, my partner always says, because I'm a surfer, the dolphins are my spirit animal. But uh, to be honest, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, like the, I like the turtles in, uh, in Nemo, the, the, the surfer dude turtles. Right. <laughs> well, I don't know, some, some marine animal. I'd say either a turtle or a whale. They're just... This is such such beauty with mm. marine mammals and, and and turtles and such grace. And, I don't see myself as super, yeah, gentleness, yeah, but like a power it, as well. Yes, yeah, not gentle yeah. when when you when there's a sperm whale versus a giant squid, but under <laughs> you know under the, the general circumstances in which humans get a window into their environment, certainly seem gentle. And they sing, they, they sing lovely, lovely sounds. <laughs> if you had an, an alter eco which is your persona did you uh, had, had you not the quest of saving the world through sustainability what would it be i don't know what i would champion it, it, it's funny to think if we weren't worried about uh ecology and we weren't worried about um making uh, i guess a safer place for future generations what where I would have gone I probably still would have just I would have worked in a curiosity space somewhere that I felt where I could develop a lot of curiosity and move through that curiosity probably not research because I'm not such a little minutiae type person yeah I I like to do the big bigger stuff and sometimes you know the smaller stuff can irritate but uh I, I do like to develop curiosity and go deeper and go wider and broader. 
So something sure. in a curiosity space. I'm not sure where. And lastly, uh, if you had a conversation with younger Shanti or someone else um, that might be late in the studies or early in their career and thinking about sustainability in some capacity, would you give any words of inspiration? Any recommendations on, on how to go about it? Yeah, I'd say take take what you can, like, don't be so, I don't know, not snobby, but to be picky about what you choose as the jobs that you choose, but also allow the opportunities that are presented to you to, to guide you. And, you know, you might not get the exact job or you might not get the exact um, company that you want to work for, but each of those places and each of those jobs has something really valuable to offer. So value, really value the position because you're getting paid and you're getting mentored and you're getting the experience to that you can take. And, and that, you know, it's, it's really a service that, that the company's giving you and it's a service that um, you can give back. So really, really don't take it for granted. And, and um, yeah, I think take some solace in it and, and, and value it. Fantastic. Inspirational indeed. Well, thank you very much, Shanti, for your time today. I've massively enjoyed our conversation and I'm certain that our listeners in our network and beyond are going to, going to find something in it. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for your wisdom. Oh, <laughs> I wouldn't uh, wouldn't make such an assessment. It's uh, it's it's it's, <laughs> it's a poorly it's poorly paraphrased and and pushed forward anecdotes. But <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I'm happy to happy to regale. Thanks, Shanti. Talk to you soon. My pleasure. Thanks, Matt.